Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. My name is Clay Reichenbach. The goal of this platform has always been consequential conversations, and we have a consequential conversation for you today. We're taking on the topic of policing with a guest who's dedicated a career to studying policing. And I understand that the topic of policing can be polarizing. It can be a hot-button issue for many of us. But the goal really of today's conversation and of this platform in general is how we find progress and positivity in these challenging spaces. I don't think anyone can deny the vital importance of discussing and grappling with issues in policing. And my guest today attempts to do just that with his research. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Sierra Aravalo. And Michael is a sociologist, he's an author, and he's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, where he focuses the majority of his research on policing. Michael coined a term called the danger imperative, which is a term he uses to describe the cultural frame through which police officers view the world. What he attempts to show in his research is that police officers are socialized into a cultural frame that emphasizes violence and the need for officer safety. And socializing police officers in this way, training police officers in this way, has cost. This is clearly a topic that's going to generate a wide range of thoughts and opinions, but I think it's such a worthy discussion, and that's one of the reasons I reached out to Michael. I think it's a discussion we must take seriously. I think it's a discussion we must find ways to have rationally. And Michael and I actually spent a lot of time in the episode today exploring how do we create environments around topics like policing where progress is not only possible but thrives. And I really hope today's conversation is a small step in that direction. Michael, I just want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. I want to thank you for sharing your research and your professional opinion. Thank you for the nuance, the complexity, the perspective, and Thank you for challenging me at times. I really appreciated all of it, and I found our discussion fascinating. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michael Sierra Aravalo. Well, Michael, first... I just want to thank you for chatting with me today, for sharing your research with me today and your knowledge. So thanks for coming on. No, thanks for making the drive down. Absolutely. Well, we're going to spend most of our time today speaking about this phenomenon that you call the danger imperative. Is that a term you coined, by the way? I did. Wow. Okay. Well, in the term, I'll let you tell what it means. But in my language, it, it describes how an emphasis on danger and violence can negatively influence culture and behavior, or perhaps just influence. But we'll get to that in a bit. But I found your research incredibly fascinating. That's why I reached out. But more than that, the reason I want to have the conversation is I think it's incredibly important. The reason I say that is it focuses on a topic and an issue that's become difficult to discuss. And I'm very interested in how we find progress in these places that are difficult to discuss. So we're going to start by defining what is, and then we'll get into a discussion about the next steps. What do we do with your research? How do we communicate your research and the like? But before we get onto that, let's just introduce us all to yourself in a professional sense. What do you do for a living? What are your interests? What are your focus professionally? My line of work is professor. I'm a researcher, social scientist, and sociologist at the Department of Sociology at UT Austin. 
That's where I did my undergraduate degree. I did my doctoral training at Yale University and did a brief stint at the Rutgers School of Criminal Justice and found my way back home. My research originally came out of an interest in gun violence and gangs. That's the work that I began in, in New Haven. And that sort of changed over time. It, there was a metamorphosis to focusing on policing and culture and how we can use the the tools of sociology to understand not just who the police are, but why they do it, why they do the things that they do and how they do them. And so I use a lot of direct observation. So I don't do surveys. I don't use administrative data, things like use of force records. Instead, I'm really concerned with the nitty gritty, actually observing officers in the field, talking with them as they're doing things, right after they do things to understand how they view the world and how they move through it. I think I took this directly from your paper, but you said culture trumps policy every time when you were trying to emphasize the importance of culture. Speak a little bit about why culture is so important and what you view and what you study. That phrase gets it gets it gets tweaked in a number of ways. So culture eats policy for breakfast, culture eats policy for lunch, whatever else for any number of meals. Uh, and I think the gist is that culture is how we come to make sense of things. And so we can design policies, we can design structures and trainings to mean certain things. We want certain goals out of those structures and policies, but we sort of set the bounds. The world of the possible is in some way set by that culture. So you might want all day long to have your policy play out in ways that are X, Y, and Z. But if your culture is such that Z is just not tenable, it's not even a possibility, you actually only have X and Y as possibilities in that particular scenario. When we say that culture eats strategy or policy for breakfast, it's that we too often design strategies and policies without really considering culture seriously. And so we often will design a policy or a training that is doomed from the very start. Culture deals with idiosyncraticness. It deals with very specific situations. Is that what you're saying? Where sometimes policy in theory deals with a perfect case scenario, deals with a generalized view of things. Is that fair to say? I think that's part of it. So I think that what people who study culture are really concerned with is that any number of people might confront very similar circumstances. But how those individuals go about navigating those circumstances, that is circumscribed by culture. Again, to use the, the example that you mentioned about culture eating policy for breakfast, I think what that's really homing in on is that if you don't consider the culture, whether that be the organizational culture, whether that be sort of a subgroup culture within an organization, and you try to design policy without considering the culture, there is a non-zero chance that you are designing a policy that is very unlikely to be successful and which in the worst case might even make things worse because you haven't considered the cultural context. I love that. That's a good, great place to start, but let's dive into it because there's a ton I want to get to with you. So let's start with the danger imperative, what it is you found, how you found it. Start from a 30,000 foot level. Describe what the danger imperative is and how you stumbled upon it. It might be useful to sort of give a little bit of background of how I came to the work. And so as I mentioned, I was really interested in gangs and gun violence, and I was working on gun violence reduction work in New Haven. And that's actually the context in which I first met police officers in a non-enforcement context. So I'd been stopped as a kid before and things like that. But this is where I sat down with officers in a room. We were trying to collect information, super high-tech stuff, literally a, a dry erase map and markers. And I was asking them, so where are the streets where there's violence, 
who are the individuals involved, who are the groups involved. And in my mind, I had an idea, like I think most people do, of like who the police are. I'd watched Training Day and The Shield, and I had some romantic notion of who the cops are. And so I met them, and I was struck by how mundane they were. And so they had a very special job, and they could rattle off names and locations. They talked about homicide and shootings, like it's something they dealt with every day. But fundamentally, they were they were pretty mundane people. During those breaks that we had in those sessions, they were talking about how the Bills did or the Giants. They were talking about the boat they were trying to buy. They were talking about their kid doing well in school or doing bad in school. And so that was my first real recognition of the police really as being very normal people with very special jobs. Fast forward a couple of years and Michael Brown is killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And I, being an intrepid graduate student, was trying to read up, right? I was trying to contextualize these articles that are coming out. And I, along with a lot of other people, am shocked that we don't know how many police officers were involved in shootings every year, how many people were shot by the police every year. We now have those numbers because journalists and citizens have begun aggregating that data themselves. We still don't have a tally of that produced by, say, the FBI or the DOJ or anybody else at the federal level. But at the time, the data was bad. And I began to realize- Can I just I, stop you? Please. Do they not track that data or they have it and they won't release it? The FBI, the It DOJ. is not tracked at a national level. So Incredible. individual departments- We'll track that. It tends to concentrate in large urban departments that have accountability structures, uh, transparency structures. There's public data portals. But as far as a national database that is produced by the FBI or by the DOJ or the NIJ or a federal agency that systematically tracks shootings by police or even homicides by police, it does not exist. Seems like a pretty important thing to track. That's all right, we won't hypothesize on why that is. We'll move past it, but keep it, keep going ahead. That Go ahead. Sure. So that reaction, if I can't believe we don't know that, is the same reaction I had. And so I was beginning to have all these questions about why. Why are these things happening the way they're happening? I know they're happening. And it turns out that there are certain methods that are well-suited to answer certain kinds of questions. Surveys can get you so far. It turns out it's hard to survey police departments, particularly multiple police departments. It turns out that when you want to know about process or you want to know about culture, you can only get so far with a survey instrument. As someone that was trained by sociologists who had themselves trained in the use of what we call ethnographic methods, it's a fancy word for directly observing things in the world, participant observation is another way that we talk about it. I began to think that the way for me to understand the how and why of policing was not to do interviews in some, some cafe, was not to do surveys, it was to get in a car and actually understand what it is police officers do every day. I just started doing that in three cities, Elmont on the East Coast, West River on the West Coast, Sunshine in the Southwest, and those are pseudonyms per my research agreement with the Institutional Review Board and these individual departments. And so that's what I started doing. I rode around and started talking to people. And what I came to find was that the preoccupation with violence and officer safety is a constant across these departments. It's across officers of all races, across genders, whether you've been on for two years or 30 years, there is a consistent preoccupation with the possibility of violence, a line of duty death, and the need to provide for officer safety at all times. And that's what I call the danger imperative. The danger imperative is a cultural frame that centers on this preoccupation with violence and the need to provide for officer safety at all times. And it structures how officers see the world. It's baked into their policies. It's baked into their training. All of those things are both a reflection of that danger imperative 
and a product of the danger imperative. And officers perform this danger imperative every single day. It's how they dress. It's how they stand. It's how they talk. It's how they interact with people. And it is, if you believe my argument, the central feature of policing. If I'm hearing you right, police culture and training tend to fixate on extremely low probability violent events. And this practice oftentimes has counterproductive outcomes, correct? It focuses on the rarest parts of their work. So violence is relatively rare. I think it depends on which kind of violence and we can get into the nitty gritty. So if you want to talk about what they emphasize the most, which is dying in a hail of bullets or being ambushed, we're talking about the rarest possible outcomes. You're talking about scuffling with somebody, getting their hands behind their back, maybe pulling a hammy or scuffing your elbows and knees because you went down to the pavement. That certainly happens more often. And it's actually at a much higher rate than other occupations. But that's not what they're talking about. The focus is on, let's say it, death. The rarest substance. Absolutely. Focus on death. And uh, later, I definitely want to talk about the term danger and should we expand it beyond tracking death. But for now, let's just focus here. Does the data prove a net negative from a fixation on death or just that negatives exist? I think it suggests that negatives exist. So the, A lot the, more research to figure out whether it's a net negative. Yeah, I think if you want to boil the question down to something along the lines of how many citizen injuries and deaths occur that would not have occurred if not for this overemphasis on lethal violence among police, it's an incredibly difficult question sure, to answer. Sure. I think that what my work points to is that it's important to realize that when you build a culture in a certain way, you're going to bias behavior in a certain direction. And somebody bears that cost. If we talk about culture of safety in an airline industry, the people who bear the cost of you having a profound emphasis on safety and quality of your parts that you're putting together and assembly, the cost is borne by the corporation, right? They got to eat the cost of time, of resources, and personnel. And the people who benefit are, of course, the passengers who don't go down in a fireball. It's not the same calculus when it comes to policing. The people who bear the cost of a culture of safety are the public. So if officers are making miscalculations, the public bears the cost of those miscalculations if they're operating under the assumption someone is a threat when they're not. And then, of course, it's officers. If officers make the wrong bet, they don't think that somebody is a threat, and in fact, they are someone who poses a threat, then the officer would bear the cost in that particular scenario. What I think the work points to and what I think is shown in all kinds of data, whether it be arrests or stops or searches or uses of force, is that police and policing is structured to minimize only one of those sides of the equation. It's designed to minimize the likelihood that an officer fails to recognize a threat. Before we get there, what are some of the most common negative outcomes that are produced from this fixation on danger? And maybe take some time to explain the difference between policy compliant and policy deviant. So in terms of the things that I observed that I wrote about in this in this particular paper that we've talked a little bit about, American policing and the danger imperative, I actually focused a lot on behaviors that are very difficult to see or even understand unless you are like in the car with a police officer. So policy compliant behaviors are the kinds of things that are very much by the book um, and in many cases are very low cost. So an officer, for example, when they're engaging in a car stop, 
they might be taught to position themselves in a very particular way behind what's called the B pillar of the vehicle. So if the A pillar is the metal piece of the car that sometimes obscures your vision when you're taking a wide turn, the B pillar is the one that's kind of by your head. So an officer will stand at that B pillar because it gives them a tactical advantage where it forces the driver to kind of crane their neck. And the logic behind it is it's very difficult for someone to shoot you from that particular position, right? That's compliant with policy. It's a really low cost thing for an officer to do. Others include things like touching the trunk of a car. So they want to make sure the trunk of the car is closed. And you ask them why, you'll get different rationalizations for why that is. One of them is to leave your fingerprint on the car or on the taillight because if something were to happen, whether that officer be shot or killed or somebody runs, then that fingerprint could theoretically be used to tie somebody in space and time to that place, a piece of evidence in some later court proceeding. And the second, much more dire one, is that you want to make sure there isn't someone in the trunk waiting to ambush you. Now, keep in mind, I have found exactly zero cases of either of those two things happening when I spoke with officers, but this was taken as an article of faith. And to be frank, these are low-cost things. It doesn't really hurt anybody to touch the trunk of a car, but it is continuing to reify the sense, the sense of danger, the belief, this collectively held understanding that these are things that cops do, because if we don't do them, it might cost us our lives. It's a re-emphasis that your job is very dangerous, and you need to be aware of that at all times. Absolutely. And by behaving in that way, officers observe each other. Officers, if you're a field training officer and you teach your officer who is your trainee to do that, now you're perpetuating this way of seeing the world over time. And you're perpetuating a set of behaviors that align with this cultural frame, this kind of way of seeing the world over time. So all those are policy compliant things. Then there's a brand of policy compliant behaviors that are the kind that are the bulk of negative interactions with the public. So for example, When you walk up to someone as an officer and their hands are in their pocket, it is perfectly within policy and it's perfectly legal to tell someone, get your hands out of your pockets. Let's say that they don't take their hands out of their pockets because it's cold outside or because they don't know why they're being stopped or because they just don't like the police. That interaction is now set to go in a very different direction. So officers also are taught about things like command presence. It's important for officers to give a a sense of being in command, of being in control. And they're also taught that any sign of resistance, any noncompliance needs to be interpreted as a signal that things are going to potentially escalate. And officers must gain control of that situation because if they fail to gain control of it, then their lives are on the line. It is their fault if they fail to control a situation immediately. And so officers will begin to do things like raise their voices. They may grab somebody. They may, the one thing they'll tell you very often as well, I use a technique of ask, tell, and then make somebody do something. First, I'll ask you. You don't do it. Then I'll tell you to do it. If you don't do it, I'm going to make you do it. All of these things are within policy. All of these things are within the law. And all of them can be justified on the grounds of officer safety. They can all be justified within that cultural structure of the danger imperative. Now, what does that mean? Well, realistically, most people, most citizens are going to walk away from that interaction uninjured. They're not going to walk away with bullet holes or broken bones, but they're going to have walked away from that interaction feeling a certain kind of way about the police. And I think that that's the bulk of interactions. It can be policy compliant. It can be legal. It doesn't mean that it was moral. It doesn't mean that somebody left that interaction feeling like they were treated fairly by a police officer. So that's all the policy compliance stuff. 
as I jump in real quick, I want to put a flag there because I do want to talk about whether something like asking someone to remove their hands files in the good thing to do or bad thing to do. And one of my takeaways from your work, Michael, is simply that we should be more mindful of, number one, the underlying probabilities and risk of danger, but of what we're asking and how that interaction takes place and have conversations like the one we're having amongst police officers so that we can decide which ones are worthwhile and which ones are a net negative. And that was kind of my takeaway is we need to talk about these things and we need to be mindful of these things. If we don't, we're going to overlook some things that are net negatives. Go ahead and go into policy deviant behavior and what that means. Sure. So if policy compliant behaviors are the kinds of behaviors that officers engage in for the sake of officer safety and being ready for violence that are squarely within policy, often explicitly trained in the academy or in field training, then policy deviant behaviors are these behaviors that are in direct contravention of policy. And policy is important here versus law because they're not the same thing. We can we can dive more into that specifically if you're interested. And these are the, again, sort of more mundane examples, but that again, I think highlight just how pervasive the logic is amongst police officers. This is not something that explicitly operates in the context of police citizen interactions. It actually operates all the time. So one key example that I that I picked up in my field work was how officers drove. And so the vast majority of policing is paperwork and driving around. Hurrying up and waiting is a very common thing in policing. It has very little to do most of the time with gangs and homicide and shootings and active shooters. That's what they talk about a lot. They train a lot for those things. But really, most of what you're doing, you're taking police reports, you're mitigating or you're acting as an intermediary during these mundane interactions between people, fights between neighbors, fights between roommates, fights between parents and their kids, the stuff that drives most of policing, police interactions. And so these policy deviant behaviors can also be justified on the grounds of safety. And so one of these is called driving code two and a half. This driving policy that exists in most departments is actually designed to prevent officers from getting into these catastrophic car accidents, one of the leading causes of death in policing every single year. And so most departments have a policy in place that is restricting the number of officers that can drive code three, which is usually lights and sirens above the speed limit, because they don't want officers, A, plowing into pedestrians. They don't want them crashing into people who are on the road. And they also don't want officers plowing into each other at speed. Generally speaking, having multiple vehicles heading for the same point at high speeds is a recipe for a car crash. But officers will flout this rule commonly. And this is based on some of the understandings of what is expected of officers because of the danger imperative. So what's expected from officers is that if a call is a hot call, meaning a fight in progress, ranging all the way up to a shooting is in progress, robbery in progress, someone's got a gun, the Code 3 policy is far less important than A, providing backup for your fellow officers who are expecting speedy backup, and B, doing what's expected of you. That's called driving code two and a half. And so with code two and a half, you don't go full lights and sirens. You just use them periodically. And everyone has seen this. There's a name for that behavior you see on the street. When an officer gets to an intersection, maybe flashes the lights, gets everyone to stop, and then roars back off again, but their lights are off. That's driving code two and a half. And it's justified on the grounds that we need to get to the scene to support our fellow officers because seconds could mean someone's life. The code three policy be damned. This is a bit of an aside, but I'd rather him go code three. Like I, when I read that part of your article, I'm going, just turn your damn lights on and go. Even if you're 
flouting policy, it's clearly safer to let everyone know that I'll be driving recklessly, to, for lack of a better term, to get to this situation than to turn it on and off. But anyways, we'll, we'll go past that. So we'll come back to policy deviant and policy compliant. I, I really find some interesting things to talk about around policy deviant. But like you said, you spend a ton of time on the ground with these officers. You're observing tactics. You're observing training. You're observing norms. Were there any behaviors in the training that jumped off the page as bad ideas, or are we always pretty much talking about very subtle trade-offs here that are tough to to make out real time. I think that there are some things that you could think of as subtle. And I don't think that subtle necessarily equates to good or, or bad. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. There are subtle ways that officers engage in, in training, particularly training officers. So in one training in Sunshine, they use a called a prism simulator. It's a simulation device that has a bunch of pre-recorded videos attached to it. There are much fancier versions now made by companies like Vertra. It's this big immersive, like 300 degree, super high def video, dozens of branches, which are basically alternate realities that you can make the scenario go this in. Virtual reality police simulations. Exactly. Basically. Sure. Um, yeah. So this is a version that's just a video on a screen, but the same theory, the same logic is behind it which is that the training officer gets to decide what direction the story goes. And then the officers who are in the training, these are often called shoot, don't shoot trainings, but they can be more expansive. It can be, oh, I use baton, I use taser, I use a gun. But very often it's just about the gun. That's what you're training. The training officer decides which way it goes and the officers will react to whatever's on the screen. Why don't you tell the one, the landlord tenant that you observed? Sure. Yeah, go for it. So in, in one training that I observed in Sunshine, the particular scenario is a landlord-tenant dispute, and the officers are prompted. There's a, a dispute happening at this house, and you arrive. And the officer on scene is presented with the landlord on the porch, the tenant on the bottom, and they're just having an argument. And that's something that I've observed in the field in real life. Like, there's an argument happening, is in the call notes, and you arrive, and people are shouting at each other. Clearly, they're upset. It's not clear what's happening. Someone's saying something, 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 and the rent, and something, 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 get out. And there's just two men and they're angry with each other. That's all you really know when you arrive. And so officer, the officer that I'm observing, you know, does what he's been trained to do, which is if two people are arguing with each other, you separate them. You don't let them keep arguing with each other. You take this person, I'll take this person. We're going to split them apart, lest things escalate here. In this particular video, though, particular scenario, the man on the porch says out loud, very pointedly, do something about this guy, because if you don't, I will. And then storms in the house. Now, for an officer, this should be throwing up a couple of red flags when it comes to their training. You don't let people, by police training, go into rooms that you can't observe for the same reason that you don't let them put their hands in their pockets or start opening and going into a backpack because what could they be doing? They could be getting a weapon, right? So the officer says, sir, I need you to come back outside. I need you to come back outside. And this is not super fancy VR. These are just predetermined videos. So the guy happens to come back out. But he's carrying a shotgun now. So the situation has completely changed. So the officer there, he draws his simulation pistol. He tells him again, drop the weapon. A couple of seconds pass. The man doesn't immediately drop the weapon. The officer opens fire, strikes him twice. Scenario ends. And then there's the debrief. And so in that debrief is when I think you see these subtle pieces of policy and law operating. The training officer is the one that would decide whether or not the man on the porch would drop the gun. He knew that he wasn't going to have the man raise the firearm. 
And he said that explicitly. He said, in this scenario, he actually puts the gun down. But to be clear just to the listeners, the trainer knew that he would put the gun down. The officer in the simulation had no clue, just to make that point. Correct. So so at the beginning of any interaction, the, the training officer who's running the simulator basically hits go. And there are a couple of predetermined points in these different scenarios where you can decide certain things happen, right? In some scenarios, someone's hands are in their pockets and they come out with a gun. In other scenarios, their hands are in their pockets and they come up with nothing. Other scenarios, they come out with a cell phone. These are all branches that the person who's running the simulation can pick. In this particular one, training officer knew that the guy was not going to raise the shotgun and shoot at the officer. He'd already selected the one where he did it. And he explicitly told the officer this. He said, you know, in this scenario, that doesn't happen, but I still think that that shooting was a good shooting. Why? And then he explains why. He says, well, who comes out with a gun when there are two police officers there? How long does it take for him to get that gun up if he wanted to? Not even half a second. So I can't really critique that shot. That's a good shooting. Now, I think what's really important here, legally, he's absolutely right. A reasonable officer, and that's the main, the objectively reasonable officer, that's the law. That is baked into many departments' use of force policies. It is, however, a very subtle way training officers to think about when and how they can justify their use of force. And in fact, or the officer that was in that training and chose to shoot, when I asked him, so why did you shoot? He explicitly used the phrasing that I think it's a lot of people, it, it gets their ears up, which is, well, I told him to put the gun down. He didn't put it down. And at that point, I would fear for my life. This boilerplate logic, not to say that it's not necessarily true, but boilerplate logic, which is enshrined in constitutional law. So this is one of those subtle ways in which the training is happening to teach officers how to understand and use force. I think that what we're beginning to, not even beginning, I think what we've been talking about for a long time amongst researchers and amongst legal experts and policing experts is that the objectively reasonable standard is not as objective as we like to think it is. And it's actually incredibly wide. It gives incredible latitude for police officers to justify when and how they choose to use force, including lethal force. And that spins out into these kinds of uses of force that we see, which from an outside perspective are utterly unjustifiable. But that doesn't mean it's not legally justifiable. Well, I'm glad you went here, Michael. I didn't plan to bring up this landlord-tenant, but I I do remember reading that section. And in that particular section of your article, you were really focused on what is, not the ought. And I found myself thinking about to what your opinion was there. I read through that and I got to say, I agreed with the officer. If I've asked you to put down the weapon and you went inside with an officer president and brought out a weapon, the officer was completely justified there. And I think this ties in nicely to our original discussion of idiosyncratic, very specific situations on the ground, which we have here, Versus policy and generalizations and theory and simplifications that take place in a lab or in a hall of Congress. Now we're on the ground. If I'm in that situation and you went in, came out with a gun, number one, I'm already a little worried there. I asked you to put it down. You didn't. I feel like he's in the right. I I don't know if you want to give an opinion there, but what are your thoughts? Was that a situation where you felt like there was some bias that played in, or that is a situation where you felt like, no, this was the right call. It was very ambiguous. It was highly uncertain. And 
the officer made the right call or was justified, whether he made the right call or not is maybe not the right term. What are, what are your thoughts if you want to share? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things that I can point to, which is one is that the case of somebody who is irate going into a house against officer commands, coming back out of a house with a shotgun and not dropping it is pretty clear cut. And I wouldn't say otherwise. That's a pretty clear cut case. And I think that most people presented with that particular scenario being empowered and trained to treat weapons as lethal threats and firearms are lethal threats, that that is something that checks all the boxes for this objective, reasonable, the objective, reasonable test that's demanded by the Supreme Court for federal purposes. I think that that is a simple case. And most cases are not that simple. The problem that arises is that you begin to teach officers how to view the world in terms that are justified to them, that are evidenced to them as being very reasonable ways to approach the world based on situations like this one. I like that case. Yeah. Okay. So they start using that case to make decisions in other cases that are much more ambiguous. Absolutely. And in fact, the law is limited in that way. The law, in fact, tries to be broad enough to capture a whole range of cases that law demands a sort of generalizability to a wide range of circumstances. It turns out that some cases, in fact, many cases are pretty clear cut. I don't think anybody really gets, I can't even say anybody. I think it is much more understandable when you read a story or you learn about a situation where an officer gets involved with someone, that person pulls a gun. Then we get into arguments about, well, was he throwing the gun away? Was he doing... And those questions, I think, are a different subset than cases like Tamir Rice, where individuals who are holding sandwiches and cell phones and staplers, these are the kinds of cases that, again, within the danger imperative, they're all justified. They're being influenced by the danger imperative. So I would even, you mentioned a few names that are clear. I would even separate those from an officer that's in some sort of a physical altercation. Because one of the things that I've picked up on is any physical altercation with an officer is a physical altercation that involves a gun. So those are ones maybe that are more clear cut. But I I see what you're saying. That's the interesting point of the danger imperative. By focusing on this landlord-tenant prism scenario that you mentioned, that bleeds into someone walking down the street with their hands in their pocket holding a sandwich. Got it. Got it. Well, let's we're going to get into that and we'll try to find maybe some interesting space where we disagree later. But before we get there, in preparation for this, I spent a lot of time thinking about why police officers fixate on violence. Why do they fixate on death? And the obvious reason is because they believe it keeps them safe. But It must go deeper than that. And you actually alluded to some points that go deeper to that. So if you would try to give us the most charitable interpretation for this cultural frame, if you would still man the other side of the argument, why would a police officer who designs these policies tell you that they're doing it? Because policing is dangerous. And I think that that's a discussion that so often gets boiled down, these very simplistic, and I'm guilty of it myself early on, earlier on in my own research, I would use these very simple statistics about the most deadly jobs. And it's absolutely true. If you look at the jobs that have the highest rate of on-the-job fatalities, policing doesn't crack the top 10. It's jobs like lumberjacks and electricians, roofers, 
These are the jobs that actually have the highest rate of fatality. But that's, of course, simplistic. There's a lot of things that are dangerous that don't kill you. And some of the work that I've been doing most recently with my colleague Justin Nix at the University of Omaha and the School of Criminal Justice there, we're looking specifically at the phenomenon of firearm assault. And so usually, we only capture fatalities from firearm assaults. It turns out that most officers don't die when they get shot. It's something like 84% of officers who are shot don't die. And so if we're looking at just fatalities, we're losing the lion's share of actual cases. And when you compare the risk of being shot between police officers and the public, I think unsurprisingly, police officers are shot at higher rates than the public. I think where we begin to get to this question of is it reasonable or unreasonable is does the probability account for the emphasis? And I think that's a sticky question because then you have to get to a place where you begin trying to quantify, so how much emphasis do we put on this really? If it's less, how much less? Some people would say that we shouldn't arm police officers. I will be on the record saying, I think that that's a ridiculous notion in a place that has as many firearms as the U.S. And so I think that's also where you get to these simplistic comparisons of, well, and you hear the similar conversation around things like gun control. Well, Australia just got rid of all the guns. Like, well... There's a very particular like geopolitical arrangement in Australia where the entire population effectively is in like a couple of these cities, literally a handful of cities, and there's way fewer of them. The same kind of sort of simplistic encapsulation of the problem, I think, affects conversations around policing. It's important to understand that when I talk about the danger imperative, I can find all kinds of ways to be critical about it. And I think that's what the work is trying to point to, is that there are unintended consequences to the way the danger imperative is constructed and perpetuated. But it's not to say that there aren't reasons for why it exists. We can quibble about the, well, it's too much emphasis on this given the probabilities. And I tend to fall on that end of the spectrum with very particular caveats, which I'd love to get to when it comes to the particular way that you teach officers to be scared or to be preoccupied is the the verbiage that I prefer. I think scared can be read as very pejorative, same as paranoid. We can talk about whether or not the emphasis is outsized. But to say that there's like no reason for police officers to be concerned for their safety is deeply uncharitable. And also, I don't think reflects the empirical reality of police work. I love you went there. One of the reasons I started conversations like this is because I don't think there's enough of that complexity and nuance in our public conversation. And I certainly think that if you want to change minds, if you want progressive reform, you must do what you just did. You must get beyond the death rates of police officers and you must take on the ambient levels of anxiety, the uncertainty, the physical altercations, the moments in time where they are clearly physically overmatched or mentally overmatched. All those things go into danger. I'm going to get into this because I read a few op-eds. One of my criticisms of those op-eds I read, and some of them used your data, is they pretty much explicitly start out by saying, hey, bud, your job's not that dangerous. And I think if you're trying to create an environment where progress takes place, where police reform takes place, that's not where it's going to happen. But before we get there... I think I want to stay here on reasons for why it takes place. And I want to read a quote from your article. And this is really focused around police deviant behaviors, but I think it's fascinating. You say here, human behavior and decision made under conditions of risk boil down to a balancing act 
of probability and potential harm. What is missed in the world of probabilistic risk is that people don't dread or avoid probabilities. People fear things and what those things may cause. I really want you to elaborate on this point because I think it's so true and it's something people miss is that the level of consequence associated with a threat matters. It's important. And I don't know if that's the point you were make, but that's what came to my head. If the level of consequence is catastrophic in nature, that probability of the threat becomes less and less important. So elaborate on that point between a balance and act between potential harm and probability. I think the examples that I like to use in this case are very boring, very actuarial. I think one of the classics is the risk of air travel. I've got one that's not so boring. Go ahead and give it to you. Please. I have two young daughters and I've read a lot about this free range parenting. Have you heard of free range parenting? Vaguely. The yeah. idea is that you should allow your my girls to be exposed to within reason, risk, walk home from school by themselves. If they're having an argument with a bigger kid on the playground, let them solve it themselves. Let them face adversity is basically the point that this book makes. And the idea of free range parenting is that if we don't develop that skill, you'll have very fragile adults. So I've adopted this somewhat. And one of the points in this book, which is, is scary, it's not mundane, is they point out that the probability of your kid being kidnapped in the United States statistically is zero. It, there's a 100, 150 a year. There's 50 million kids. The probability is zero. However, if my daughter is kidnapped, it's earth shattering. The consequence is catastrophic. So my point to the author in that book was going, I'm not so sure that I'm irrational by prioritizing that higher than zero. I thought of that scenario when I was reading through policing, that they do have some catastrophic events. Not all of them are deaths, but prioritizing those things beyond what the probability is, is probably not completely irrational. And that is a deeply human phenomenon. That is not something that uniquely affects the father of young girls. It is not something that uniquely affects the worldview of police officers. People, humans, are really bad at calculating risk of rare events. They're also not particularly good at tempering those sorts of off-the-cuff, split-second calculations in their head of what they're going to try and guard against. Because in that particular case, having your girls kidnapped would be earth-shattering for a number of reasons. At least one of those reasons is that would mean that you failed as a father. You can no longer lay claim to the status of a good dad. Why? Because you didn't take the steps to protect your girls, to protect your family, to do what dads do. The same sort of cultural understandings of what makes someone a good police officer affect what police officers do. What I talk about at length in that paper is that officers will take steps to keep themselves safe from certain dangers. There's some really excellent work on the sort of culture of risk. The book is by Douglas and Wolkowski. And one important point they make in that book is that the world is full of infinite dangers. And if we were to try to guard against all dangers, we would be paralyzed. We simply couldn't possibly guard against every eventuality, every possible risk. And so we pick certain risks. And the reason we pick certain risks over others, that is something that is culturally defined. The risks that we decide as a group, these are the ones that we're going to guard against because these are the ones that we think are either the most relevant 
They're the ones that we should, and again, should is a very prescriptive word, but that's again something that's culturally defined. In the world of policing, the danger that's emphasized is violence by criminals. And now we're getting into the world of where we can begin to see bias creep in, these preconceived schemas about who is criminal, who is violent, where is dangerous. And that leads officers to engage in behaviors in the name of safety against certain things, these shadowy criminals with guns hiding in trunks, in ways that actually increase their net risk because they're not taking care of dangers that are actually more likely to get them killed. And the example in the paper is driving in seatbelts. Officers again and again and again are driving around at 70, 80 miles an hour, and they're not wearing their seatbelts. And I asked them, like, this makes very little sense to me because I'm white knuckling it in this car. It's two o'clock in the morning and we're on a one way, their seatbelt's off. And I'm asking them why. And they say, well, because if I need to get out of the car quickly, I don't want to get hung up on my equipment because the seatbelt will get in the way. Or it might obstruct my ability to draw my firearm if someone's got a gun and I have to address that. They're guarding against the danger that is culturally defined as being the most important for them. They're not guarding against the much, much higher likelihood of plowing into a light pole or losing control of the vehicle and flipping over and getting tossed from the car. And that's in part because A, it's what's emphasized, and B, if you are shot by a criminal and you die, you have failed. You have not lived up to this sort of ideal prototype of the police officer. A police officer, the ideal, the heroic, the sort of, if you want to get like in a philosophical sense, like this ideal type of the police officer is somebody who is strong, someone who is heroic, who shows great courage in the face of danger, and overcomes that danger. They survive the danger. They survive the firefight, and they either they kill that person, they neutralize the threat, or they get the person in custody, they save the hostage, and they live to fight another day, and they have a storied career. And that's this sort of mythical sense of the hero cop. And if you die in the line of duty, you fail to do that. You fail to fully internalize the training and the tactics and the culture that is designed to keep you alive. It's a hard job. Let's let's linger there a bit because I do think anytime we get in the space of critiquing policing, we need to speak honestly about the difficulty of Mm -hmm. policing. Officers work in a state of constant anxiety for long hours, and this tends to bring out the worst in people, our basic instinct. Self-control turns out is not our default human setting. Self-control requires a ton of mental effort. Self-control actually burns energy. You burn glucose when exerting self-control. And things like stress, things like fatigue, make self-control difficult. Do you believe a fixation on the danger imperative compounds that level of anxiety, making self-control and reasoning more difficult? So there there is a frontier of, of research, which is we're trying to move out of the lab and see how these things operate with real officers in the real world. I think that you can explain some of this with biology. There's a lot of good reasons to suspect it's the case. We know that people who don't sleep well and have broken sleep cycles and do shift work, they're cognitively impaired. We know this. Officers aren't somehow immune from that biological truth. We know that cortisol affects cognition as well. If you buy what I and others have argued about officers being in the state of hypervigilance, they're going to have higher cortisol levels. 
And if they're doing shift work, they're going to be sleeping less. That in and of itself is a recipe for making less than ideal decisions, particularly under stress, particularly under constrained time, particularly in the dark. There's all kinds of reasons why you'd make bad choices. What I think is important to recognize is that the danger imperative, it allows a way to make sense of those things after the fact. It allows officers to frame even mistakes as something that, you know, you got to break some eggs, essentially. Officers have told me explicitly, better to be tried by 12 than carried by six. They would rather make the wrong choice, these particular officers, shoot an innocent person, mistake something that wasn't a gun for a gun because the cost of them making the opposite mistake, not seeing that thing that is a gun, assuming it's not a gun, could cost them their lives. And that's the danger imperative in action. So there is certainly something about the biology here, the added stress of seeing trauma. And I really can't emphasize this enough for listeners that the things that officers see are at best disgusting and at worst they are soul crushing. I'm very lucky in that I didn't see even a small sliver of what somebody sees over the course of a 20-year career. But just in my time with officers, dead bodies, even more common than that, it's just like the crushing tragedy of poverty and disinvestment and mental illness and people that are just at their ropes, they're, they're at the end of the rope and they had literally nobody else to call but the police. And the police see this day in and day out and day in and day out. And that will take a toll on people. But that is very different from a cultural frame, the danger imperative, that allows you to essentially frame everything as an issue in office, of officer safety. So both of those things can be true, and I believe them to be true. Well, that's why I mentioned earlier what I took away from your research is not really right or wrong. It's we need to be mindful. The important parts of your article to me and the important parts of this conversation is pointing out the things that you pointed out about the difficulty and the anxiety level and what that does to a human being. I've oftentimes observed to people that at its core, we're asking one flawed human being to police another flawed human being. In situations where you and I are unwilling or unable to handle them ourselves, that's a very tough place to start. And I would argue that in order to seek reform, we must speak clearly about that. And you did that in your article. So let's move on from there. I want to get into this idea, which you alluded to, of very human qualities, very human behaviors. I've spent a lot of time studying cognitive biases and fallacies for a number of reasons, which leads me to a very interesting discussion, at least in my mind, of where the danger imperative and common human cognitive distortions overlap and where they do not. So when I'm reading your research, the reason I'm asking this is I oftentimes find myself saying, this behavior is not unique. It's very normal. I could take that sentence and plug in a hundred other groups and that sentence would make complete sense. So I'd like to get your perspective on where the danger imperative is distinct to policing and where you think it overlaps with behaviors that we find in all human beings. To be frank, I don't think that the danger imperative is really all that distinct to policing. In its consequences, it might be. In the way that it manifests, in the way that it's perpetuated, it might be. In its context. Absolutely. 
But the notion that people are like over indexing on the probability of violence and the need to stay safe, that is something that in my mind approaches like an American pastime. That's not an American, that's a human pastime. That's an evolutionary pastime. And I think that what you see in the US, and this is where I think maybe we we diverge, it's certainly a, a human quality to be worried about violence. You add in guns and you get a very American instantiation of that particular human instinct is to be concerned with your physical safety. You know, even Freud talked about there's two drives. There's a life, there's a life drive and there's a death drive. It is human to be concerned with preserving the sanctity of your body and the people that you care about. And we could get like small group philosophies, so psychology, tribal societies. That's not something that I think is all that controversial. People want to people want to be. It's safe. human to prioritize threats, and perhaps evolutionary mm-hmm. to prioritize threats over wins. I think so, and in the context of violence in particular, right? And I think that that is if you look at you know decades of research on people's assessment of crime versus actual crime, they wildly overestimate how much crime is actually happening in the world around them. Whether it be homicide, any index of crime, people are just really bad at estimating it. How about estimating police violence against citizens? That's also, it's a bar- just to point out how human it is, Absolutely. ask someone how many unarmed individuals police shot last year, you're almost guaranteed to it be high. That's It's very human. But I'll, I'll tell you why I think this point's important in a second, but keep going. To your point, I an, I asked my undergraduates that in my policing class. It's one of the first things I do at the beginning of the semester is I ask them a, a series of questions about what is your estimate for this number? What do you think the number is? For listeners, you know, it's pretty consistent. About a thousand people a year are fatally shot by the police. But I get estimates 10,000, 50,000. The number is, is, is astronomical. If I ask you what percentage of police interactions result in a use of force, I get 20%, 50%, when really, depending on how you're cutting it, it could be somewhere between like 1.5 and a fraction of a percentage of these interactions result in a use of force. And so completely agree that these misestimations of rare events is a very human thing. And these things are also politicized. It's what's called an availability bias, which is the idea that we are all aware of a very curated, non-random sample of news and what bleeds leads. And so when we think about the frequency of an event, we rely on availability bias. What's available in our memory? Well, what's available in our memory? What we've seen on the news. Therefore, we overestimate the frequency of these events. You took my bleeds and leads. I use that one all the time. <laughs> well, let me tell stuff. you why it's important. I want to see if I can convince you of this or if maybe you disagree or some shades of gray. The reason I think speaking about where we overlap with humans is because I worry that we as a society spend too much time pointing at groups and too little time pointing at humans. I believe understanding and speaking clearly about where we overlap is necessary for progress. In framing a police interaction as that happened because that officer is just like me is totally different than that happened because that officer is part of X group or Y group. I think one is inclusive, one is divisive. And my argument is that in really difficult discussions like the ones you study or difficult topics like the ones you study, the inclusive environment is the one that's going to foster progressive reform. That's my thought. What are your thoughts on there? Go ahead. Disagree with me. Elaborate. Go for it. 
there are pieces of that stance that I can agree with. I myself have tried my very best to help people understand officers as people with a unique job in that there's a whole bunch of things that happen from perfectly call them reasonable or just not that interesting things all the way to catastrophic failures. And underlying all of those things are in many cases very mundane reasons. As a sociologist, I'm really interested in structure. So I care a lot about policies and laws and norms and culture and things that constrain individual behavior in predictable ways. Insofar as that is a nod towards this idea that you can put a lot of different people into this system and you're going to get very similar outcomes, absolutely. I don't disagree with that contention at all. The next step, of course, is does this particular structure, this particular system, does it bias in certain directions? Are you more likely to get certain kinds of outcomes in this system versus this system? Are there ways that we could alter this system in a way that you're going to be less likely to get certain kinds of outcomes? Lethal force might be an obvious example to think of because there's just a way for us to, to change the structure for us to get fewer lethal shootings. I'll be the first one to say, Imagine that I could snap my fingers today and I gave every police department in the country a perfect filter to remove racists. And I can have a perfectly not racist police department. Are racial disparities in use of force going to vanish? The answer, undeniably, is no. Am I going to move things at the margins? I think so. I think I'm going to get fewer of the egregious cases where you think you can make a very principled, if not obvious argument that this person is acting in a way that is racially biased, if not openly bigoted. Sure. Does that remove all of the inequality? No. Why? Because that's the structure. That's the system. It's actually functioning exactly as it was intended to function. It's concentrating police resources in particular places. Training that never mentions race, by the way, is going to continue to produce behaviors demanded by the training that produce a culture that manifests in the same patterns of behavior. I take your point that there is a lot of value to be had in talking about, is this a thing that we can point to individuals, the quote-unquote bad apples? And I'm firmly like the, no, nah, it's not really about bad apples. This is about a system. I think, and this is, the, this is the more pointed critique, I think, of the stance, is that I think that that, that train of logic very quickly gets us to a place or can be used to get us to a place where we begin to say like, you know, can't we just like agree that we're all humans here, right? We can be colorblind about this, right? Better to be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin or that gets trotted out every single year. That's, I think, the danger of leaning too heavily into this idea that we're all humans, right? So, well, we're humans, but we exist in systems and these systems are not equitable systems. They're biased systems and they're designed in many cases, to be that way. I love this. We're getting into some weeds, but they are beautiful weeds. And my point would not be to not acknowledge the training that, that's taking place that's flawed or the behavior that's taking place because of biases. My point is, again, I'm going to use this term, to be mindful of where we overlap. 
And the reason for that is because how we frame an issue, how we discuss an issue, whether it's in personal life, business, politics, wherever, is oftentimes determinate in our desired outcome. Thus, how we frame this discussion is incredibly important. And I think it's very easy to go back through history or go back through situations and see yourself as the hero. I think it's a lot more challenging to go back and say, I might not have been the hero there. And that's what I'm trying to encourage in this situation, not to play fast and loose with the facts, not to say, oh, we're just all humans, but acknowledge where we are humans, if nothing else, that I think it's tactically more secure to move the conversation forward. I think challenging spaces require us to see each other as humans first. I, I agree. We have to be careful. We have to have conversations like this on a public scale, but we have to realize that in many of these situations, the reason why it happened is because you had a human being, a flawed human being there. And in other situations, you had Derek Chauvin. We do have to hold two thoughts in our heads at once. Sorry for that. No, you don't need to apologize at all. And I think I, I like your example about Derek Chauvin because I think that what my work is trying to point to is that the danger imperative explains Derek Chauvin. And it also explains perfectly reasonable, perfectly understandable, justifiable shootings. Let's move on to probabilities and base rates because one of my takeaways, and you can tell me whether this is right or wrong, is that we should be mindful of base rates and probabilities around police violence. And then we should design policies and procedures that better reflect the underlying risk or the actual underlying risk. Is that accurate? Would you just describe your position in that way? I think the tricky part is, is that we've tried to do that already. So the driving policies that we have, for example, are designed based off of knowing that probabilistically speaking, an officer is more likely to get involved in a car accident than a shooting. We know that to be true. And what I think the work on the danger imperative shows you is that culture eats policy for breakfast. I think an ideal scenario would be one in which we are designing policies and tailoring them in such a way that we've, I'm, I'm, I'm even struggling to think about what this looks like, where you've somehow dialed in the number of hours where you can tell somebody that any car stop could be their last moment on earth to the right level, and you've tailored firearm training to the right level so that you maximize the likelihood of them shooting in the right scenario and minimizing when they don't, but they also wear their seatbelt. You see what I'm saying? I, I, it's difficult, but it's a worthy conversation. That's mm -hmm. why I'm here. Yeah. I think, yeah, you do have to have those. And is that really, really hard to do? How much do we talk about death and how much do we don't? I, but it's it's valuable. I think it's a worthy conversation. I think you're, that's why I think your work's valuable. It's to say, hey, yeah, it's very difficult. And you can throw your hands up and say, no, we're never going to make it work. or you can have the conversation. And so in, in my mind, the, the low-hanging fruit is just don't make it worse. As I mentioned before, I think some people will say with a straight face, police officers should not have firearms. I will say once again on the record that I think that that is a fanciful notion that officers in this country in particular are going to not have a firearm when we have more guns than people. But that's very different from having official posts, that's police officer standards and training. Every state has their own. Sometimes it's called peace officer standards and training, but the post. From having training, that's the official curricula 
that cites work by people like Lieutenant Dave Grossman, the self-professed founder of the field of killology, who goes around the country and teaches officers things like, and I think I'm quoting here, to catch the predator, you must be the predator, end quote, who talks to officers in much the same way that he talks to soldiers about how they must be ready for that moment of truth. There's a fine line between talking about the reality of how fast something happens and about the kinds of cognitive changes that happen and are moments of extreme stress that any athlete would recognize, that weird tunnel vision that you might get in the moment of a big play or something happens, you actually don't remember what happened. Those are real physical, psychological phenomena. There's a difference between that And then saying in a seminar, for example, that your sex will never be as good as after you kill somebody on duty. There's a difference. Why is that anywhere near the official state training? I'll be the first to say it shouldn't be, period. Since I have a social scientist sitting in front of me, let's back up a little bit and look at probabilities from a higher level because they can be very tricky. Sometimes they're very, very helpful in predicting outcomes. Sometimes they're only relevant in certain time and places. And other times they're not only unhelpful, probabilities can lead to poor decisions and can lead to discrimination. So walk me through how a social scientist deals with the complexity of using probabilities and base rates. So I'll quote my colleague, Justin Nix, actually. So he's done a lot of work on trying to understand the the phenomenon of officers use lethal force and kind of contextualizing that in a statistical sense. And one of the biggest frustrations for a social scientist is that we call it the base rate problem. The denominator problem, I think, is a little bit simpler. What is your denominator exactly? So one branch of research, for example, will try to quantify this by just looking at the population benchmark and asking, okay, is there a disparity between the percentage of a population of people in the population writ large? So say the percentage of Americans who are Black versus Latino versus white. And then amongst those who are shot by police, are those percentages the same? The problem is that not all of those people are encountering police at the same rate. The denominator is funky. The denominator is not actually capturing what we're trying to capture. In the same way, people have critiqued some of Justin and I's work on officers being shot in the line of duty as, well, You're just taking the population of officers and looking at the rate per 100,000 officers. And it's a valid critique. We could do any number of denominators of of the baseline measure. That could be the number of stops. It could be the number of calls for violent crime. Maybe that one's better. Maybe the local violent crime rate is better. Maybe the number of arrests is better. These are all different baselines. And your ability to make any kind of conclusion or claim is going to be fundamentally dictated by what your denominator is. One of my points here and the why I'm, I'm lingering and then we'll move on is just to articulate the complexity in these conversations is at some level ostensibly we're asking officers to be mindful of the probability of a violent act and make decisions based upon that. While at the same time, we're going to ask them not to utilize probabilities and base rates of high crime neighborhoods and to treat individuals different upon that because that's unethical. I say that just to highlight the complexity. And when we're talking about base rates and probabilities, if we're not willing to speak clearly and objectively about them, it's very difficult for us as a community to figure out when to forbid them and when to embrace them. 
I think I, I think I see what you're driving at. And I think that the reality with police is that, like I think a lot of people, they like to think they're very good at discerning the wheat from the chaff. They think they're good at identifying particular phenomena. And you'll hear officers say things like, I mean, you know, like that guy, that guy's got a, he's got a nose for guns. It turns out in practice, hit rate for things like stop and frisk, which I think is this sort of phenomenon of, well, you go to neighborhoods that have high crime and you just stop people. Infinitesimally low hit rates for things like weapons. I don't have any real reason to believe that in the aggregate, there is such thing as the officer that is just, he's, he's really, really good. And I think, in fact, most of the time you get a lot more misses than you get hits. And what informs your ability to make sense of that as being worth it or being a good way to do policing is, again, a cultural phenomenon. I think for a lot of officers, they'd be very reasonably able to justify for themselves like, yeah, you know what? I stopped 10 cars and I was very polite to all of them. And that got me one gun. I think others would be willing to say that, well, but that's nine people that you stopped under what are effectively pretextual reasons. They crossed the middle line, their blinker was out, and you did get something. I, by the way, I think that one gun per 10 stops is probably a very high hit rate, but we need to get some statistics for that. There is a tension here where in some cases, you don't really need to care about the base rates because what you need is objective, what you need is reasonable suspicion. And reasonable suspicion ain't hard to get. It's very easy to justify any number of stops. And they're legal. I don't know what information an officer would be given that would somehow change that structural reality for them. That if they can justify in that moment, I'm going to stop this person because of X, Y, and Z, that they can legally do it. Even if there are ulterior motives, it could still be a legal stop. I want to talk about taking your data, take your research, and turning it into op-eds and talking points designed to influence behavior and promote reform. In a perfect world, what is the takeaway from your research? How do you envision leadership and policing, policymakers using your data to promote change? I mean, I think for me, the ideal scenario is that people begin to understand the danger imperative, the culture of safety, whatever you want to call it, as having unintended consequences that actually hurt everyone. The general feeling within policing is that like, it's really unfortunate that we have to train this way, but that's the reality out there. And that's what we have to do. We have to do is stay alive. And what I think my work begins to show is that there are some things that you're doing under the same banner of officer safety that are directly harming officers and harming the public. And so maybe in an ideal world, we will stop treating the problem of officer safety as somehow so distinct from the problem of public safety. I think that historically, the problem of officer safety has always been a convenient political football. I think it's leveraged by everyone, Democrats, Republicans, whenever they want to pass a crime bill or get funding the police. Like that, I think, is consistent. But we seem to believe that the best way to keep officers safe is to give them armor, funding, more cops, things of that nature, instead of looking at the root causes of the problems that actually lead to those violent interactions in the first place. I wish that we could get to a place where we actually had police officers and policing generally on board with the idea that the way to keep officers safe is not through more policing by itself, but through actually addressing problems that would structurally change the environments in which police themselves have to do their jobs. 
let's get into that. Share community-oriented policing that has worked. If you want to get into the New Haven study, that seems to be a solution analogous to what you're talking about. So the study that we did in New Haven was focused on a very particular intervention, which we thought of as sort of the the smallest identifiable building block of community policing. And this is a sort of an ethos that now spans the better part of half a century, which is that you need to have the community act as partners in deciding what the problems are that the police will focus on and is very much in line with a lot of the language that I'm sure viewers, viewers that listeners have heard around procedural justice and legitimacies. You have to have trusting relationships in order to, quote unquote, co-produce public safety. The reason why we did the study in the first place was really because the research base on this was quite weak. People have defined community policing quite literally as walking patrols, community meetings, ice cream socials, bike patrols, newsletters, and that makes it very difficult for us to say that anything works if we're measuring it differently every single time. And so what we did was we randomly assigned households in New Haven, Connecticut to receive a door knock from a uniformed police officer, and they engaged in a very short conversation with the resident of that house to tell them, Hello, my name is Officer Sierra Revelo. I'm an officer in this district. This is my beat. I'm here to to meet you and to give you my card. And they had a handwritten phone number on it. And so I just here I want to ask you how things are going in the neighborhood. And if you have anything that you need me to know about, please, like here's my card. That's the whole thing. Usually took less than 10 minutes. And we were focused specifically on perceptions. Can this shift how people view the police? And we found out that we can, that that simple interaction was enough to durably shift how people perceive police effectiveness, their legitimacy, their willingness to cooperate. And it lasted up to three weeks. And it was strongest, in fact, among black residents of New Haven. So people had the lowest pre-intervention measures of things like legitimacy and trust of police. They had the biggest increases. And I think that that's, that's good news, is that officers actually can change hearts and minds with a short interaction. It sounds like wonderful news, doesn't it? That a very simple single instance of positive contact can have a substantial change in attitudes toward policing. That seems like a big win, doesn't it? I think that it's a big win that tells us nothing about whether or not it changes the actual conditions of people's lives. By that, I mean, does crime go down? I have no evidence of that. Does it mean that officers will not continue to behave in ways that we know also negatively affect perceptions of police? I have no evidence of that. And so in some ways, it is good news that if we could potentially, say, have more of these positive interactions, that we could improve attitudes and perceptions. But I think it's way too far, I believe, to say, for example, that this kind of intervention is going to reduce stops perceived as unlawful. It's going to reduce excessive force. I don't think there's any evidence of that. I think that these are the kinds of things that, once again, if we're treating the perception of how big of a problem officer safety is as an issue that police have to solve, then you're left with these sort of piecemeal interventions, like doing door knocks or community meetings or coffee with a cop, which do nothing to affect the structural things that drive the crime and the violence and the disorder that are the ground in which violent interactions occur. I think if you really want to change policing, For the better and make officers' lives safer and citizens' lives safer, then you do changes that affect both of them simultaneously. And I think that some of these solutions, we know what they are and they're simple. I recommend 
the book Bleeding Out by Thomas Abt. Um, it's a couple of very clear bullet points. And what can we do to the, the number one thing is violence. What can we do to reduce violence? And it turns out not all those solutions are policing. It's simple things like lighting. It's simple things like greening spaces and changing the facades of abandoned buildings. And I think that those kinds of solutions too often get talked about as completely separate from policing. The police need to make, ensure their own safety. And then we'll deal with violence over here as if these two things aren't deeply intertwined. One of the reasons I was saying is it's wonderful news is that relatively simple change can sometimes lead to substantial positive effects. And it, painting buildings is a simple change. Knocking on doors and having a conversation with someone is a simple change. And not all of our problems are going to be solved that simple, but hopefully thousands and thousands of those stacked on top of each other will. It's obviously easier to train police than it is to educate all citizens. However, I'd like to know if you think the citizens play a role here, and if so, what is the citizens' role in improving interactions between police officers and helping to combat the danger imperative? Citizens certainly have a role to play insofar as they are part of the interaction. I think that I am skeptical of the kinds of interventions that come usually from within policing, which is like, we'll just invite people to the, to the academy. And so they can go through something like the training that police go through so they can understand what we are taught. And that way they will better behave themselves when the police come to interact with them. What about starting a national conversation of the difficulty and the complexity that goes into policing in an effort to Encourage more empathy and patience and charity, lessening that anxiety that leads to difficult self-control. I mean, some sort of a national conversation that doesn't put the onus on the citizens, but educates the citizen. Is that a worthy task? I think that if I had finite resources and time, that's not where I'm not where my head's at. And I'll explain why. I think that asking citizens to empathize with police officers and to understand when they say, get your hands out of your pocket. And when they say, I need you to sit down here. And you know what? I'm going to cuff you now. I don't know who you are, but I'm going to cuff you. Why isn't it the other way around? I would argue burn the candles at both ends so we get to the middle quicker would be my point. Or even if it's something as simple as what a horrible mistake or risk it is to resist arrest or to go hands-on any police officer and why. You Basically, some sort of public service announcement or some sort of conversation, I'm thinking out loud a bit here with you, that basically educates citizens. Hey, the time to make your point against a police officer is not at the point of arrest. Basically, my thought was there's some value in educating the other side. I think it's a goal that I can appreciate as one that makes intuitive sense. I think the reality of dealing with state agents who are armed, who are empowered by law and empowered by policy to use those tools and to use their powers, no interaction between a citizen and a police officer is equitable. By definition, it's not equitable. Only one of those sides is empowered by the law to use violence if they want to. Which um, is how it should be, correct? Presumably is how it's, I mean, the police wouldn't be the police if that wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, it has to be, I would think. There is nothing that makes the police the police more so than their supposed monopoly on violence or the state. 
That's not the case here in the States. For most interactions, that is the case and when it comes to firearms at any rate. But I think that the idea of something approaching a public messaging campaign or an education campaign begins to treat the problems of policing as something that's driven by individuals and not systems. That it begins to say, well, if enough individuals just figure out the right way to interact with police officers, and if enough individual officers begin to treat people the right way, they make the choice to do it, then we'll get to a better place. And so again, if I'm if I'm putting on my my policy lever's hat and I got finite money and finite resources, I am way less interested in training people to during what are inevitably high stress, rapidly evolving situations. Even if they're not rapidly evolving, people don't call the cops to celebrate birthday parties. They usually call on moments of distress. So why are we expecting people to remain calm, cool, and collected when they might very well be having the worst day of their lives? Or the police officer showing up is the beginning of what is going to become the worst day of their life. I don't think that my policy dollars and my policy time is going to be invested given the choice in something that is effectively, if we just understand each other better, we'll be able to somehow overcome the reality of what these situations are in the field. That doesn't change the level of unpredictability that officers are assuming about it. That doesn't change people's deeply held, and I will add, historically justified fear of the police. The probability in some ways that any individual person is going to be shot by a police officer, that's the worst case scenario, but you can do a lot of things between shooting somebody and doing nothing that people want to avoid. And so I don't think that that's the place to invest our resources. I think it's about changing structures, about changing how often these interactions happen. Cops go to a lot of things that they don't need to be at. That, for me, is where you begin to shift. And so if you think from a public health sense, we're sort of trying to cut away at the extremes of the distribution of bad stuff. A public health approach would be just to shift the mean entirely. The whole distribution shifts over. And I think that's where we get to with systems level changes as opposed to things that are aimed at changing individual behavior. Point taken, point taken. I guess I'll just leave it as I hope as you become a star in this space and thought leaders like yourself become more and more popular that nuanced voices like yours will make an impact. So maybe we don't do it through policy. Maybe we do it through podcasting or maybe we do it through <laughs> op-eds that includes complexity and includes nuance. Maybe that's how we make a bit of change here, but point taken, I agree with you. So last thing here, and you've hit on this a lot, so if we've already covered it, you can say so, but what can we do as a society to help create environments where progress is possible on this front, to help bridge that divide? Sure. This is a very trite thing to say for a research crowd, but I'm going to say it anyways. We have to have data. I think that particularly to some of your earlier points, when you get to conversations that are so charged, when they're about things like race and power and violence, it can be really easy to veer off into places that you're making a lot of normative ought and should claims as opposed to understanding concretely like what is the world out there and that what is the world out there is a necessary bedrock upon which you build the rest of it. It was sort of an aside earlier. You were like shocked that what do you mean we don't have like a national database produced by the federal government on the number of people who are shot by police? Seems important. <laughs> you would think, but that I think is part of the problem. 
is that we so often are left in this dataless vacuum to try and figure out how to fix a problem that we don't even fully understand. And that, I think, is something that everyone needs to get on board with yesterday. We need better data. We need smart people collecting data. We need smart people analyzing data to think about where we can most effectively intervene. I think that so often the conversation gets polarized into like a, we need to abolish the police or BLM and Antifa are terrorists. And we're just screaming at each other from either side. And I, I, to be very clear, I'm not trying to equate these as, as equivalent positions. There are very reasonable and principled arguments for things like abolition. But you can't even have that principled discussion about what that actually is in practice because both sides are just screaming and not able to come to any sort of common agreement about what the state of affairs is in the middle. Middle is the wrong word, just what the state of affairs is, the empirical truth about the world out there. And in order to do that basic thing, you need to have data. And that data, I think, it should be collected all the time. It should be funded. It should be something that is prioritized within departments, across departments. There's a reason why it doesn't happen, but it continues to be the Achilles heel of so many problems that we're trying to solve. But I think that policing and the criminal legal system more broadly is exemplary in the lack and poor quality of the data that we are forced to work with to try and solve some of the most pressing social issues facing us today. So grants for the University of Texas Sociology Department is the answer. Earmarked for me specifically. I agree with you. And then I think the next step is to grapple with that data. When we do have data, be willing to be mindful of it, be willing to grapple with it, even if the data doesn't come out the way you hoped it would. This has been a treat for me. And I I appreciate it. I appreciate the intellectual curiosity. And thank you so much. Thank you. No, no worries. Thank you.